absent the defense communities, the mission of the installation is not possible. We are also looking for ways to take the investments that we're making on installations and make them part of the resilience strategy for the defense communities that are surrounding it. Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, why the DOD cares about climate change and climate resiliency and how innovative technology and data-driven decision-making are key to bringing positive impacts to the sustainability and climate resiliency. It's Thursday, October 5th, 2023. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast, where you'll hear the latest news and trends facing government leaders. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Billy Mitchell. Here's what's happening now. The Biden administration is proposing a new standardized set of cybersecurity procurement requirements across the federal government for contractors that work with unclassified federal information systems. The proposed rule posted this week on the Federal Register for Public Comment would amend the Federal Acquisition Regulation, or FAR, to include minimum requirements for cybersecurity contracts that involve federal information systems instead of leaving it up to agencies to set those requirements on their own. The contract requirements will differ for cloud-based and on-prem systems, according to the notice. Once the new requirements take effect, agencies would need to update their own requirements to remove any rules that are duplicative, but they could still require any additional rules that go beyond the baseline updates provided in the FAR language. The House of Representatives this week passed the Modernizing the Acquisition of Cybersecurity Experts Act, or MACE Act as it's called, a bill that's aimed at addressing shortages in federal cybersecurity positions by extending the pool of eligible applicants. Sponsored by Representatives Nancy Mace of South Carolina and Katie Porter of California, the bill would make it so federal agencies wouldn't be able to place minimum education requirements on cybersecurity jobs unless their education directly reflects the competencies required for the position. The bill would also require the Office of Personnel Management to publish annual reports detailing changes to minimum qualifications for cybersecurity positions and data on the education level of people in those positions. This all comes as the Biden administration has prioritized bolstering cybersecurity talent within the federal government. In July, the administration released its National Cyber Workforce and Education Strategy, which included goals to strengthen the federal cyber workforce through things like skills-based hiring, scholarships, and reducing barriers for cyber workers transitioning between public and private service. You can read more about these stories and much more at fedscoop.com. Climate change and defense, two topics you might not often think about together. But in recent years, the Defense Department has made sustainability, climate, and energy resiliency top priorities related to national security. And it makes sense. Not only is the DoD one of the largest energy consumers in the world, but in the digital age, emerging threats put the department's access to energy at risk in novel and new ways. Joining me to discuss the DOD's focus on the climate and energy, how innovative technology plays a role in that, and what's coming next is Brendan Owens, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Energy, Installation, and Environment. Brendan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm, I'm really excited to be able to uh, share a couple minutes with you and chat about this stuff. Well, I want to start with a uh, recent uh, speech that Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks gave at West Point to cadets speaking about climate change. And during that talk, 
she said that she gets a certain question a lot and it's a question I wanted to start our conversation with too. So I figured I'd use her question as my first question. And it is, why does the Department of Defense care about climate change? Because I'm not sure when people think about national security and defense, it's uh, climate change is the thing that initially jumps to mind. So in, in sort of taking the question from her mouth, let's start there. Why does the DOD in its defense and national security mission set care so much about climate change? Yeah, I, well, it's, it is a good question. I think the deputy teed it up well. I was able to be there for for that event, so uh, a lot of a lot of the words that she's that she had she used were were definitely resonating uh, with me during during the day. But I think it starts our, our response around climate change starts where everything else starts with with DoD. It's mission. It's mission related. Uh, whether that is responding to more extreme weather, floods, droughts. Uh, whether it is looking at the impact, the, the economic and readiness impact uh, of, of, of more extreme weather disasters. Um, all of that affects DOD's ability to, uh, to do exactly what we are here to do, which is, which is defend the nation and, and, and deter uh, conflict. So just a couple of things that I think are worth pointing out in terms of what the readiness and mission impacts to DOD are um, in 2016, the National Guard, which one of their responsibilities is to uh, do wildland firefighting. Um, and in 2016, they spent about 14,000 personnel days uh, fighting fighting wildfires. In 2021, they spent 176,000 person days fighting wildfires, right? So that is, these are days that National, Guards, uh, National Guard uh, soldiers are not training for other things, right? So there's a direct readiness impact there. And then you can just go down the litany of billion dollar disasters uh, that have happened over the last 10 years, a billion dollars at Offit uh, with a flood, $3 billion worth of uh, hurricane damage uh, at Camp Lejeune um, in North Carolina, and then $5 billion worth of damage at, at Tyndall Air Force Base uh, in Florida. These are very real impacts that compromise DOD's ability to do its job. Uh, so from the standpoint of ways that we are uh, internalizing the risks and the opportunities that come with responding to these 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 changing patterns of of climate, um, it's 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 really existential for DOD. It's, it's all about readiness. That's incredible. Some of those numbers are, are, are staggering to say the least. And uh, I think it makes it pretty apparent why this is such a big deal. Um, I'm curious, you know, um, thinking about how the DOD is attempting to make a difference in, in its mission set, um, how how is the, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, the Pentagon, thinking about policy and guidance that uh, can help drive some of the change and uh, uh, establish impact that is going to bring it in the direction of, of some of its goals. And I guess we haven't necessarily even talked about what those goals are, but um, you know, what is the DOD trying to accomplish as it re relates to climate, climate change and climate resiliency? Yeah, I think you, the last word you use is the one that that immediately comes to mind for me, which is resilience. Right, our ability to uh, not have our our mission readiness compromised by whatever the event is happening, whether it is a, a cyber or a kinetic or a natural uh, natural disaster challenge, is is foremost on everything that we do. So, so our piece of that, uh, the EINE portfolio, energy installations and environment portfolio, is really focused on. 
a couple of different a couple of different key lines of effort that we've been looking at. One is operational energy, which I'll certainly talk about. But the one that feels much more close to home for me is installations resilience. So we have our installations in the homeland and, and abroad uh, are used to be taken as as sort of a matter of fact that we had the ability to have pretty much autonomous uh, reign over our over our uh, uh, installations. Right, there was no threat to a to a, a military installation in 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 Conus. Um, that's that's not the case anymore. Right, we're looking at increasing levels of risk associated with. Uh, cyber attacks associated with extreme weather that are prompting us to engage in a series of resilience efforts that are designed to make sure that we can recover from any any attack that comes our way or any 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 potential for disruption. One thing that I think is worth pointing out is the the efforts that the military departments have put into performing black start exercises at an installation. So a black start exercise, it, it, for 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 your listeners who don't know, is when you basically purposefully disconnect the installation from the commercial power grid, and what you're looking for there is to understand how the installation responds to a disruption, and that disruption could have been a cyber attack, that disruption could have been a hurricane blowing through and knocking down transmission lines or distribution lines or knocking out generation. It could have been a hard freeze in in Texas. Uh, that that shut down gas plants um, or the ability to, to generate electricity uh, via via the gas infrastructure. Uh, and, and what you learn from those exercises are your vulnerabilities. You learn how your backup systems function. You learn about the resilience of your installation. And you basically have a plan coming out of that that you then implement strategies that are designed to be able to do better the next time, right? So these, these Black Start exercises are iterative. Uh, and they are intended to make sure that we understand our vulnerabilities, implement strategies that keep, make it capable of us for us to respond to them, and then also understand what the long-term prognosis looks like. So, one of the vulnerabilities we routinely and we routinely discover is that all of the emergency generation that we have on the installations doesn't fire up as seamlessly as we as we assumed it would in our O plans going into the black starts, right? So we we turn off the power, everything is supposed to turn on magically, but systems are complicated and you know maybe somebody didn't pull the PM on rent the preventive maintenance on the generator the way they should have and it doesn't start up, right? So that gives us a better understanding of the types of opportunities that we have to increase our resilience by investing in things like microgrids, like distributed uh, gen energy generation, whether that's uh, PV, whether it's uh, small, modular, nuclear, uh, and then also integrating in things like long-term uh, grid-scale energy storage, right? So if you have big batteries that don't require any type of mechanism to turn on, they're there kind of just as standby. Uh, you can transfer seamlessly between, between power sources. So with resilience at its core, we then move into all of the clean energy tech that we understand has better reliability, better resilience uh, than sort of the traditional, uh, more traditional systems that we've relied on in the past. And it, it's in the deployment of the combination of all of those things together that we achieve the resilience and the reliability and the ability to fight through whatever it is that we're looking for. You mentioned some very interesting things that kind of uh, got got my uh, 
journalists sense tingly, the, especially on the, the tech side, the innovative tech side with some of the microgrids and some of those alternative uh, methods to sustain uh, operations in, in events of crisis and whatnot. And I'm curious, you know, um, there's been a lot of examples of, you know, things that, like you mentioned, the microgrid, solar microgrids or water purification systems that services are using, uh, just to name a few. But how has the department looked to embrace innovative technology to support its goals in climate resiliency and climate change? I think the innovation is 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 key to what we're going through. I would say on the installation side, the 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 there's not much more that we really need to invent in order for our installations to be resilient and uh, responsive to climate. Like we understand how to build buildings in hurricane prone zones that are going to do better than the Tyndall buildings did when uh, when the hurricane rolled through there. Uh, several years ago, right? So we have a, a really good understanding of the playbook on the installation side of what we need to do to implement microgrids, to take advantage of distributed energy resources, to do load shape uh, management, to make our installations better citizens on the commercial power grid, for example, or to leverage, better leverage uh, the capability that that is available when we transition to an all-electric, non-tactical vehicle fleet, right? So integrating all of the batteries and all of the cars to be able to provide us standby power is one of the things that a microgrid is capable of, of knitting together all these disparate resources uh, and take advantage of capability that we didn't have until we made, started making these investments um, in electric vehicles. So that on the installation side, I think we've got a really good uh, track record, but I don't know that DOD is really leading on a lot of that stuff. Where we are leading uh, are, are on things that actually enhance our capability to execute the mission. And I think the best example, I don't know, there's so many good examples, but one great example, how about that, uh, is blended wing body technology, right? So blending wing body is a new airframe geometry uh, that creates a, a, a system that is up to 50% more efficient than the, the the traditional sort of tubular and, and wing structure that is that when you look at a KC-135 or you look at a um you know a tanker that that's out there doing refueling um or a heavy lift uh air, aircraft um you know the what everybody thinks of when they see it when they see a big big plane in the air um a blending wing body is a, is a, is, a, is a completely different geometry um it gives us a, a significant amount of uh, potential efficiency potential, which is going to cut the uh, emissions associated with the, uh, the energy that we use. Right, jet fuel is a huge carbon footprint for for DoD. But more importantly, what what the blended wing body technology, as we roll it out, is going to be able to do is to execute the mission and the operation plans that the warfighters in Indo-PACOM have laid out. Um, one of the things that 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 we understand is that there is capability that is needed in the Indo-Pacific that we don't currently have. And I think when we shift to technologies like blended wing body, where we have 50% more range, 50% more loiter time, 50% uh, more carrying capacity, that enhances our ability to execute the mission. Um, and I think that it also has the benefit of driving down carbon emissions. So when you stack those two things together, you are using less, which means you have less 
contested logistics challenges associated with moving all the fuel, all the places that it needs needs to be in theater, but you're also matching capability and, and enhancing capability that gives the the warfighter in the in the Pacific, particularly, uh, the ability to to do things that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to do, which is enhance which enhances their ability to de de to deter peer competition, which is the goal of, of all those platforms to begin with. Yeah, I think the blended wing is a, a great example of that, and one that's really top of mind with all the announcements that came out of that recently. So, uh, thanks for sharing that. Um, I'm curious, you know, obviously you want to be able to measure all of this. That's the only way you're going to be able to tell if you're you're making change and and that progress is being made. So, uh, I, I want to ask how important are data and data driven tools? I know that DoD has its climate assessment tool, uh, but things of that nature to measuring and analyzing the impact of any policies or programs related to climate resiliency or climate change? Well, I, I think we started with the deputy. Maybe maybe I'll return to one of the things that, that the deputy is sort of famous for in, in, the, in the building is uh, having people bring data to her so that she understands what is being measured. Uh, and I think that that is, uh, you're exactly right. Everything that we are working on is being integrated in a way that allows us to understand what the, the the biggest bang for the buck that we can get in terms of return on investment looks like. Uh, so I think blended wing body is a great example of a place that we understand that aviation fuel is a significant, significant contributor to the overall DOD carbon footprints, something like 70% of our total carbon footprint. And when we marry that with the operational capability that a technology like blended wing body brings, we can we can do more than one thing at a time. But that requires us to understand both of those things simultaneously. So this disparate sort of heterogeneous data environment that we that we operate in is something that the, the Pentagon for for mission reasons, for readiness reasons, has been on uh uh since since day one with this secretary and this deputy secretary to make sure that we are taking full advantage of everything that we're doing. So whether that's CDAO working with Advana, whether it's the scissors contract that 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 our team just signed, uh, strategic climate readiness uh, um, uh, a technology platform, all of that's being fed into our, we're, we're, we designed all of our work to feed well into the Advana platform so that we can ask it questions to help us understand where we should be investing. So all of the data pieces of these things coming together um, are, are, are giving us the ability to understand what contested logistics looks like in, in UCOM, in the Indo-Pacific, how we need to plan future war games to understand where our vulnerabilities are, where our enhanced capabilities lie. All of the data that's coming in here to be strategically integrated into a plan that gives us the ability to get our hands around all these things is, uh, you know, there isn't. A, I, I've yet to be in a meeting with the deputy where where uh, it was it was not a point of of significant emphasis um, that we are going to be measuring things. We are going to be setting goals. We are going to be measuring and you know checking milestones against those goals and making sure that we have the ability to understand when we're on track and when we're not on track. That's great to hear. Um, and then. You know, as we close out thinking more about measuring and looking ahead and sort of forecasting, um, you know, what should those listeners who are tuned in today, um, you know, that are interested in this space and, and sort of seeing where things go, what should they be keeping an eye out for? 
One thing I'm really excited about is a policy that we signed out earlier this year, which is focused on electrification of the non-tactical aspects of uh, installations, right? So I already talked about EVs, um, but buildings are sort of the central point of, of all of our energy use on installations. And we signed out a policy earlier this year that that is putting DOD, puts DOD on a path to make sure that all of our buildings are 100% electric. And the reason that we did that um, is so that we can take advantage of the fact that there is a diversity of energy sources that are out there, but electricity at an installation scale is kind of our common battlefield fuel, right? If we can uh, distribute small modular nuclear reactors, uh, gas turbines, um, PV, wind, batteries, electric vehicles, stitched together with a microgrid, um, our capability is enhanced if we have the ability to use any fuel that's out there to create electricity, to power everything that's in a building, um, rather than being reliant on any one fuel or any one disruption node. Um, and I think that in terms of the way, I hope that that ends up shaping the market relative to the design process that's necessary relative to the uh, better understanding around the benefits of all electric buildings from a resilience standpoint, from a liability standpoint. Um, there's a tremendous amount that we can do uh, to, to, to do that. And then maybe more, most importantly, the ability that that gives the installation to support the defense communities that are ostensibly there to support the installation I tend to think of it the other way around, um, where where the defense communities are there to to make the mission of the of the installation possible, um, or absent the defense communities, the mission of the installation is not possible. We are also looking for ways to take the investments that we're making on installations and make them part of the resilience strategy for the defense communities that are surrounding it. And the reason that that's important is that. 70% of the people who work on a military installation live in the community. So if their transportation infrastructure, if their electric distribution infrastructure is disrupted by the thing that we have hardened our installations against, you know, it's not a complete system that we can rely on. Uh, so if their power is out, you know, how are they getting to work? Are, are they, and if they are able to get to work, are they the best version of themselves for the mission that they have if they're thinking about the fact that their kids are home from school because and it's hot or, or it's cold or whatever it is. So stitching those two things together and making sure that we are blending the defense communities and installations uh, in a way that makes the, the sum of each part, um, you know, together stronger is something that I'd, I'd be, I'm really interested in advancing as 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 we look in out years from a, from the standpoint of installation resilience, community community resilience, and then all coming back to making sure that we can execute the mission. Well, it certainly makes sense that uh, all those different layers seem to come together and, and play a sort of uh, interwoven part. So uh, definitely interested in continuing to watch that. But uh, for now, Brendan, that's all the time we have. Really appreciate it. And uh, thank you so much for your insights. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. Happy to Happy to do it. Thanks. You can learn more about DOD's climate focus at the Daily Scoop Podcast.com.
The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thanks so much. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people to find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. Adam Butler and Colin Fisher help put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. We'll be back again next week with brand new episodes. Until then, I'm your host, Billy Mitchell. Thanks so much for listening.